crew and the crew that clicks the slides back there. Uh, we're just, we just decided we're going to come here and figure it out as we go. So we're working out the technical issues and um, God's still on the throne is the thing I say, right? Things don't work the way you want to. God is still, still on the throne. And uh, so I just want to say, uh, I, I hope you can just prepare and make room in your mind and your heart for God to actually say something to you today. Uh, I don't know if it's occurred to you before, but prayer, talking to God, that's, that's the primary way that we communicate to God. And we make statements with the way we act and with our attitudes too, but, but prayer is the main way we talk to God and the main way he talks to us is through his word. That's what the Bible is. It's God's self-disclosure. And so um, I just want to encourage you to have, have ears that are ready to hear from him today. So here we go. I'm excited about this. Uh, this little graphic right here might be a blast from the past for a few of you because like seven years ago, uh, we did a series. We talked about the book of James. And so I just thought, you know what? Let's just pull it back out again. Maybe jog the memory a little bit. Uh, I don't know about you, but in the last three years, with everything that's happened in the world, uh, I'm going to be really honest and bare my soul. I have become a little cynical of a lot of things. Anybody else want to raise your hand and join me and say, yeah, I have a tendency to kind of assume the worst in some places. Okay, here's the thing about being a cynic, right? You know the difference between a skeptic and a cynic, right? A skeptic will honestly question what's happening here. I'm looking for the truth in this situation. Being a skeptic is not a bad thing, but it's easy. It's a blurry line between skeptic and cynic, right? Because a cynic, yeah, I want to know the truth, but I've kind of already assumed what I think is the truth. And uh, so I'm probably going to go that direction regardless. That's what happens to us when we get cynical. Uh, so I heard about this little boy who went to, uh, he went to church, and in his Sunday school class at church, they talked about Jonah. Jonah and the whale. Now, if you're in the room, and you're a cynic, you're probably thinking to yourself, it's not a whale. It's a great fish. Just work with me, okay? Uh, Jonah and the whale. So he goes, he gets all excited about this really cool story about Jonah and the whale. And so he goes to school the next day, and he's telling his teacher, teacher, we, we talked about this crazy story. There's this guy, Jonah, and God wanted him to go that way, but he didn't want to go that way, so he got on a boat going that way. There was a huge storm, and he ended up in the fish, the, the, the stomach of a whale for three days, and God ended up taking him, you know, where he wanted him to go in the first place. And the teacher, of course, in all of her enlightened Cynicism, enlightened cynicism, she says. Well, you know, even though a whale is a very large mammal, it actually has a really small esophagus, as if a kindergartner cares about that. Uh, uh, it actually has a really small esophagus, so there's just no way that a person could not possibly fit into the stomach of a whale. And uh, so the kid's like, he's not detoured, right? He, he's just like, well, I guess when I get to heaven, I'll just, I'll just ask Jonah what happened, like how it worked. And so the teacher, being ever the cynic, she says, well, what if you get to heaven and he's not there? What if you went to the other place? And the little boy said, well, I guess in that case, you can ask him yourself. <laughs> a cynic will always find a reason not to relinquish control, right? To just hang on to control of the situation, the story, the reality. Okay, but I'm just asking you, if cynicism has crept into your life, which... I think it has for most of us. It would be almost impossible for that not to happen at least a little bit over the last three years. Just consider, what if God has a better way for you to deal with the ups and downs of life? What if he actually has a better way and all you have to do is change your mind? Just 
just decide to believe what he has said? What if it's just as simple as that? What if all he wants you to do is just start trusting him more and trust yourself less? Just, just a little shift. What if that just would open the door to a better way of dealing with life's up and downs? I think, I think we could save ourselves some trouble if that's all it took. So I just want to encourage you, be open to that. I was, um, it's probably 15 years ago, I had a college-age guy in church. He came up to me after the service, and he said, in essence, he said, you know, I, I, I'm a Christian. Like, I believe, I believe that Jesus was the Son of God. He died for my sins. Uh, I, you know, I believe, I believe all of that. Uh, I believe I'm forgiven. But, um, I, you know, he decided to live for God, but then he had this question. He was like, but how should I live? Like, what should I do now? How does God want me to live now that I believe in him? I have faith, but how should that change my, my life? Now, uh, the interesting thing about it was I knew this guy, and he had been a Christian a long time, like, like years. He grew up in church, had faith in Jesus for a very long time. And what a lot of people do when they get to the point where he was is they say, well, I tried believing, and that didn't fix stuff, so I guess I give up. It must not be true. And then they just latch on to some other idea. But this guy had resilience. He asked, the, he asked the right question. How does God want me to live? You might remember last week, Ephesians chapter 2. I read my, my favorite verse in all the Bible. That you might remember that God, God says, you don't work for grace. You receive grace. You don't work for it. You receive it. Okay? Um, so here's how that works. Uh, my friend Kyle, who I think actually, my, Kyle, are you in the room right here? No, it's just looked out. Okay. Kyle is starting a new job tomorrow. And uh, so that's exciting, right? Who's ever done that? And uh, he's going to go to Washington Trust Bank, and he's going to work, and they're going to give him a paycheck. They owe him that paycheck. But, you know, if you just felt inclined to walk up to my friend Kyle and just hand him a stack of cash, that's a gift. It's not the same thing, right? You, your boss owes you a paycheck, but somebody doesn't owe you a gift. That's how salvation, that's how God's grace works. You don't, you don't earn it. You receive it. He gives it to you. When you give your life to Jesus and you say, okay, you're God, I'm me, you're right, I'm wrong, so let's do this your way instead. When you, you get to that point, that's, the, that's where we start. That's the beginning of building our life on this foundation of God's way, living the life that he has for you. So what we're going to do today is we're going to, starting today actually for the next few weeks, we're going to look at one of the shorter books in the Bible. Uh, we know it as the book of James. Now, it's, it's actually not a book. It's actually a letter written by James, believe it or not. Uh, and it's actually been pretty controversial over the years, which I love. If you know me, you're probably not shocked by that. Uh, so here's what the, the deal with James is. James is going to talk about what the life of a Christ follower should look like. Like practically, how do I live? How does that flesh out in my life? Now, there's two kinds of controversial people, right? There are people who do it for shock, right? Because they want attention for themselves. They just sort of stir up people's emotions. And then there's people who are controversial because they confront truth, even unpopular truth. Uh, that's James. James is the second kind. So, so we're going to look at what he has to say, and then we're going to honestly assess ourselves against the truth. And uh, don't worry, I won't pass out an assessment or anything. You're going to assess yourself. I'll assess myself, not like a public assessment, okay? So just keep this in mind. I, I said all that just to say, we're not, we're not going to look at James as a way of figuring out how to make God happy with us. God's already happy with you because of Jesus. 
I don't know if you know that or not. You ever think to yourself, I know God loves me because the Bible says so, but I'm not sure that he likes me. He's happy with you because you have the righteousness of Jesus. If you've said yes to Jesus, God's happy with you. You don't work for that. You receive that. So we're looking at James to see what kind of life following Jesus should produce. God is working in us to produce a new and better way of living. So let's just start right here. Uh, not in James. Let's remember what Psalm 119, 105 says. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. And the book of James is going to light the way forward. All right. So if you have your device handy, uh, I, I'm going to use the NIV James 1, 1. If you want to flip there, little book way in the back of the Bible. There's a whole bunch of little ones, so it can be hard to find. But uh, this is what it says. Verse 1, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Hello. Uh, I'm going to just give you a little history lesson on this. By the way, I should say up front. We're only gonna go through four verses, so don't worry. I'm not gonna stop at every verse in the entire book. Uh, I wanted to give you a little history lesson, not because you want one, but because I have a microphone. Um, if you read the Gospels, okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, okay, they, they all document the life and ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus, okay? They cover a span of about 30 years or so. They all tell that story, okay? Uh, the, the book of Luke, or the Gospel of Luke, Luke's accounting of the life of Jesus. Luke was a physician who lived at the time. It covers the life of Jesus. And then the book of Acts was also written by Luke the physician. In fact, um, some translators actually group the two books together and they call it ever so cleverly, Luke Acts. Uh, they group them together. The book of Acts basically tells the story or covers historically the next 30 years how the church began from the time Jesus' ministry end, ended for the next three decades, roughly. Okay, so, so that's kind of how the biblical timeline lays out. If you were reading the book of Acts, right at the end of chapter 7, what you would find is the very first Christian ever to be martyred for their faith, a guy named Stephen. Uh, a, a mob, uh, he basically just told them, hey, listen, uh, you, you're not saved because of your religious doings. You're saved by the grace of God when you put your faith in Jesus. And uh, apparently that was not a popular message because they stoned him to death. And what I mean by that is they literally threw rocks at him until he was dead. Uh, bad deal. And if you were to keep reading right there through the end of chapter 7, the first verse in chapter 8, Acts 8.1 says, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Okay, so the Christians at the time, uh, Christianity, Jesus was Jewish. His ministry began in the area in and around Jerusalem. And so early on, all of the Christians that there were, were all Jewish. They were all ethnically Jewish. Okay, so, uh, so they started right there. And what happened was some of the religious zealots wanted to stamp out this movement. And they thought, well, if we... You know, if we treat this guy, Stephen, horribly, I mean, if we just kill one of them, basically, hopefully that'll squash it down. But what happened in reality was the Christians just went, whew, they just scattered, except they didn't go quietly. They just started telling everybody about Jesus everywhere they went. And it had the exact opposite effect that they were hoping it would have. The non-Jews, uh, the, the Jewish zealots, if you were, they wanted to squash this thing, but actually it gave the Christians reason to start going out and sharing Jesus with other people. So when James is writing to the Christians who have been scattered, 
he's writing to all the Christians that there were at the time. When he uses that phrase, the 12 tribes, that's basically code for the Jewish people. Uh, the entire nation of Israel, they were, uh, they were basically descendants of 12 tribes. And so at that point, he's writing to Christians. Uh, Non-Christians have really not come into, uh, non-Jews have not really come into the church as of yet. So the bottom line is the audience he's writing to is all the Christians, all the believers. And that's important because it means this letter wasn't addressed to a particular person. It was addressed to all of us. It was addressed to everyone who follows Jesus. So if we get in here and you're like, oh yeah, I don't really like that one. I don't wanna do that. Sorry, it was addressed to all of us. There's, there's no like side door on it. Okay, so that was a fun fact, but this is where it actually gets really interesting. It's interesting because in that verse, James refers to himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, that may or may not be interesting off the cuff, but it's interesting because James was Jesus' brother. He's, just think about that now. Some of you got a brother, right? Uh, you have a sibling. Is there any chance under any condition, I mean, is there a snowball's chance in any given conditions that you're ever going to refer to them as the Lord? Is that gonna happen? That's not gonna happen. There is no chance. I got a brother and he's a solid dude, but no, that's not gonna happen. Okay, so uh, you might have some, might have had some difficulty in your childhood. I believe that. I'm not minimizing that. That's a real thing. Uh, but James's childhood was screwed up. Jesus was his brother. Like, just think about how that could have played out in, like, the normal stuff, right? Like, uh, there, Joseph and Mary had several sons. Mary comes in. She's like, which one of you jerks keeps leaving the seat up? It was Jesus. Yeah, I don't know. Was it really? It doesn't really, doesn't really seem like that makes a lot of sense to me, right? So, like, how are you ever going to blame your brother? Your brother is perfect. Just think of the trauma that that would cause in your life. James had a weird, a pretty weird upbringing. So let's think about it this way. Uh, Micah, you got a sibling? Yeah? Uh, you got a brother, right? Okay. Um, is there any chance that you're ever going to refer to yourself as a servant of God and of the Lord Ezra? Is that ever happening in your lifetime for any reason? No. <laughs> okay. I got to make the answer right there. Okay. Here's the thing about that. One of the great evidences that Jesus actually truly is the son of God, the savior of the world, God in the flesh, is the fact that his brothers worshiped him as God. That, that actually is just a tremendous uh, testament to the reality of him being God. Because if anybody knows you're not God, it's your family. If anybody knows you're not perfect, surely it's your family. Jesus had another brother named Jude, who also wrote one of the books of the Bible, uh, called the book of Jude, uh, believe it or not. And in Jude 1.1, this is what it says. He introduces himself, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. A servant of Jesus Christ. It's unlikely that my brother is ever going to refer to himself as Patrick, the servant of Kelly, let alone call me the Lord. Although, you know, we could talk about it. <laughs> Because he's known me my entire life, and he has plenty of reasons to believe that I am not God, that I am not the Lord. But it gets more compelling than that. Okay, James and Jude, they, were, they call themselves servants of Jesus, but it, it gets even more compelling than that. Because the Bible actually tells us that for most of Jesus' life, his brothers did not believe in him. If you were to read in John chapter 7, um, you would kind of see his brothers basically taunting him. They're basically saying... Hey, if you're really God, why don't you go out and do something in public so we can all see? 
Who, who would make that kind of claim and then just keep it to themselves? And then they, it says in, in John 7, 5, it says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. And they're, they're there. They're saying, hey, prove it. Convince us. Show us that you're really God. But Jesus isn't, he's not interested in establishing his own influence. I doubt if he would have cared about being like a YouTube celebrity in our day. He's interested in solving our biggest problem, solving our problem of sin and death, the reason God sent him in the first place. So his brothers don't believe while he's alive and doing his ministry. They don't believe in him. Okay. But something happened, right, between then and now, because now they're calling him the Lord. Something, something significant had to happen to change their mind. What was it? The answer is they encountered personally the resurrected Jesus. That will change your mind. They were there when he was crucified, and then they saw him resurrected. They went from publicly rejecting Jesus' message to now eventually suffering profusely in defense of Jesus' message. That's not a switch that you make unless you're sure. And so I, I kind of call all attention to all of that because if you just try to drop yourself into their shoes, it actually really is a compelling evidence for the notion that Jesus really was who he said he was. It's actually pretty strong evidence. So history tells us that James was a person of such noble character that he got this really cool nickname. Uh, the, the public, the people of his day referred to him as James the Just. I just picture him like he's walking through Jerusalem with like dark glasses, black trench coat, fighting crime, standing up for the little guy. That's a cool nickname. And we know from early church records that uh, the Jewish leaders who opposed the church, what they thought was the public trust James so deeply that if somehow we could just get James to deny Jesus, this whole thing would go away. So church history tells us that what they did was they took him to a high point in the temple in Jerusalem and demanded that he basically recant. And when he didn't, they pushed him down off the wall and then the mob smashed his head in. That's, that's how James died. What I'm saying is, as exhaustively as it could possibly be said, is that James was sure. He was sure about what he knew. And now he's writing us this letter to all Christians to encourage them, this is what the life of a Christ follower looks like. This is how you take your faith and you begin to work it out. And James is a really straight shooter. You know, sometimes for me, uh, I don't know if you're this way, uh, maybe it depends on your personality. Sometimes, you know, you just kind of need like a brother or sister to come along and say, yeah, you're doing great. You're going to make it, you know, hang in there. Sometimes that's helpful. But if you're like me, sometimes you just need the old ball coach to come along and be like, Armstrong, you better get moving, right? Sometimes you need that. James kind of does both right here in the book. Now, I just spent a bunch of time, like half of our time, setting the scene on that so that we could look really briefly at this first section, verses two through four. Here's what it says. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So James, he dives right in. Like the only pleasantries you get are when he says, greetings, that's it. He just jumps right in, which I love. I'm not a person who like, if there's business to be done, I don't, I don't need the warm up. He just jumps right in. He starts talking about how 
Christians should deal with trials. Anybody ever been through a trial, a difficulty, a hardship? I think the answer for every person here is yes. We all face trials. Like, remember three years ago when the world was about to end? And so we all did the obvious thing, rush immediately to Costco to buy toilet paper, right? Everybody remember that? We've all been through trials. Next time that happens, <laughs> hopefully that won't be the case, but I'm just going to go right for the tortilla chips. That's really, I realized that was really all I need in life. I mean, I'm kind of an innovator. I'll find a solution for the other problems. Uh, but but I, next time I just need to go straight for the food, okay? My brother-in-law, by the way, who's one of my very best friends, he works at Costco, and he has, like, stories to last a lifetime about the madness, like the, the ugliness of humanity that went down right in his working place, his workplace. But my point is, we all kind of know that scene, and it's evidence that we all face trials. We've all been through hardships. Maybe you got one right now. Chances are you do have one right now. A difficulty at work, a difficulty in your marriage, maybe some debt weighing you down. Maybe you got kids that aren't doing as great as they could be. All, all kinds of things. Maybe there's addiction, loss, depression, discouragement, something else. We all go through trials. And, and thankfully, James doesn't say, consider it fun when you experience trials of many kinds. Because you know what? They're not fun. They're not fun. Hardship is not a good time. As the famous theologian Conan, Conan O'Brien once said, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But let's not forget that it almost kills you. That's kind of a real thing, isn't it? James is saying, consider it pure joy, not fun. So he's a straight shooter. He's a realist. And he assumes that trials are inevitable. Okay, this is, this is kind of the, the big idea of that section. And what I want you to hang on to is that trials are inevitable. If you're thinking that you can escape them and get through life without them, please don't be deluded. Don't waste your effort on that. Trials are inevitable. They're a real thing. Not if you face trials, but whenever you face trials of many kinds. If you've ever wondered why life is sometimes hard and unfair, why it has to be that way, uh, there's actually a pretty simple reason for that spelled out in the Bible, and, and Romans chapter 1 says it about as succinctly as, as it could be said. This is what it says. Paul says, for all they, although they, when he says they, he's talking about humanity, he says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. He goes on to say, they, humanity, exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. And that's the problem. We worship and serve created things rather than the creator. What are created things? Everything. Everything that is not God. Okay, so it doesn't have to be a tangible thing. It could be a relationship or, um, you know, maybe just an idea or a dream. We, we're great at worshiping pretty much everything. And Paul says in Romans, what went wrong in all of this is that we exchanged God for something else. We decided not to worship the creator, but to worship created things. C.S. Lewis really famously said it, said it this way. He said, human history is the long, terrible story of mankind trying to find something other than God, which will satisfy. And of course, he went on to point out that we can never find it because it doesn't exist. It's not 
It's not real. Such a thing is not a real thing. Every form of loss, sorrow, destruction, despair, frustration, etc., injustice, all of those things entered the world because we said, God, thanks for coming. Thanks for the offer. We're just going to go this way. I'm just going to do my thing. That, that's how the whole thing went wrong. Beginning in the book of Genesis, it didn't take long. Consequently, when we chose our way over God's way, trials became inevitable. They're just a real fact of life. But thankfully, James doesn't leave us in the land of doom and gloom right here. He has, he has some other stuff for us back in this verse. Sorry, it's not on the screen. Um, James doesn't leave us there because his larger point is that your trials exist for a purpose. They actually have a function in your life. Okay, so if you've invited Jesus into your life, he can and will redeem that trial that you're going through right now, that thing that's stressing you out. God can redeem that for something valuable. If it's happening to you right now, yeah, how easy is it for you to believe that this is ever going to be redeemed for something valuable? Maybe not that easy. Maybe not that easy for you to believe it, but that's what James is telling us. Now, I know there's people in the room who are going through tough things, and the reality is I don't know what it's like to be in your shoes because I'm not you, but I also know that everyone here has felt the weight of loss, of disappointment, of betrayal, these kinds of really difficult things. We've all experienced it. I've been through trials. I've been through difficulties myself. Okay, so I've never been you, but what I can tell you is good things can come from your trial right now. I've never been there where you're at, but I'm empathetic towards it. And when I say that trials have purpose, it's not pastor speak. That's what I'm asking you to believe. It's actually the word of God, that your trials produce something, or they can at least. And James feels so strongly about it that he says, consider it pure joy. How about that? How about the thing that's hard for you right now that's causing you to lose sleep? How, how excited are you about considering it pure joy? But it begs the question, right? What the heck is wrong with James? Like what, what are you thinking, okay? Pure joy is not my default position when I face trial. If you're like me, you're looking for solutions. I'm a solution guy. I want a way out from under this. James, what's your secret? If there's a way to consider trials joy, I would like to know what that is. So here's what happened to James. There's this really interesting passage in 1 Corinthians 15. I'll just read it off to you. I think it'll be up there on the screen. Um, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Christians in Corinth, and this is what he says to them. He says, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, the most important thing. If you wonder what the most important thing in the Bible is, here it is, right here. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and then he was buried, then he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, then he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12, that's Jesus' disciples, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Here's the thing about that. Here's what Paul's saying. Jesus died and he rose from the dead. And just in case you don't believe me, here's a whole list of people you can go ask right now. That's pretty cool. If you're making it up, you don't put that part in there. Check out what the next verse says, though, the next five words. Then he appeared to James. That's what happened to James. He encountered Jesus. Jesus did really, truly, in fact, suffer immense trial, immense difficulty, persecution, eventually death. 
He was rejected by his own family. He knows what that kind of betrayal feels like. But what did God do with Jesus' trial? What did God do with Jesus' pain? The answer is he used it to bring redemption and salvation for people like you and me who were powerless to save ourselves, people like us who reject him by nature, who worship and serve created things rather than the creator. God used Jesus' pain to solve that problem. God has always used pain in redemptive ways for good. So I'll just tell you one simple shift in your mind that you can make that will make your trials more bearable. And that is to embrace the possibility that God will produce something good out of your hardship. I'm not saying that he will turn your pain into something good. I'm saying he will produce something good out of it. Because if you've ever experienced a tragic loss in your life, guess what? It will always be painful. It will always be part of your story. God's not going to take that and make it non, not painful anymore. It's part of your story, but he can produce good things. When I was 10 years old, my family experienced the worst possible type of tragedy. And now, three and a half decades, decades later, we could all look back and say, good things have come from that. Would you vouch for that? Good things have come out of it. God can produce good things. God can make good things out of the ashes. And so I like to think of trials this way. They're gonna happen, it's, it's inevitable. Uh, God does produce good things from them. Trials do have purpose. So I got two options when I'm going through something difficult. One option is it can just be difficult and I can just endure it and get through it. And honestly, that's kind of wasting the opportunity because I can do that, I can be stuck in it, or I can be hopeful that God will produce something good through the difficulty. There really isn't much else. There's being stuck or there's being hopeful. These are the choices. So James said, consider trials pure joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work. You know, the only way you get realistically hurt on a roller coaster is if you jump off the roller coaster. If you just stay on it until the ride finishes, you'll be okay even if you're terrified. Okay, let it, let it finish, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Not only are trials inevitable, but for the Christ follower, they have purpose because they accomplish purposes, God's purposes in our lives. And I don't even really wanna say this out loud, but that makes them a gift. If they're accomplishing God's purposes in our life, trials are a gift of sorts. I know you might wanna throw rocks at my head until I'm dead right now, but that's, that's just the logical outflow of where it takes us, okay? So uh, who here has ever played organized sports? Even at any level, even like third, fourth grade, even as a kid, okay, great, that's awesome. Uh, I played organized sports all growing up. My kids played some organized sports. So um, here's the thing. If you've ever played organized sports at really any level beyond like, you know, five-year-old soccer, one of the things you know is that the games are really not won on game day. The games are won in the preparation. Game day is just when you take all the work and you just go out and like finish the job, right? So, uh, so one of the things we do, like in our household, we're, we're a track family, okay? There's races coming up in the spring. And some kids are gonna win, some kids are gonna not win. But the kids that are gonna win, they're not gonna win on race day. They're gonna win right now. 
as the rest of us are staying inside because it's freezing, they're the ones that are out there pounding the pavement and nobody's there making them do it. Those races in April are won in January and February when nobody's looking, okay? The ones who actively persevere through the training, they're the ones who grow and mature. But growth and maturity are a choice. They're a choice that we, we have to make. Growth and maturity will not happen on their own. That, that's just the reality of life. And I like to use that. I don't often use sports metaphors, but I think it really holds in that case, okay? The training will mature you. Uh, I have a, a friend who was telling me he was at this really swanky uh, fundraiser, and there was like a ballroom, and in the middle of it, there was a, a grand piano, and they had hired a pianist to sit there and play, and, and he was just so enamored with this. And he's like just standing there watching the guy play the piano, and he was like, it was just incredible. For like two hours, the guy just kept playing, like no music, no anything, he just made this incredible music. And my friend said to him, man, I would I'd give my right arm to be able to play like that. And the pianist, without even looking up, said, how about a little practice? <laughs> I don't want it that bad. I don't want to persevere through the practice, okay? No one's out there forcing you to persevere, okay? But this is how maturation works, when we choose it. So let me ask you this question. If you had the option of a life with no difficulty, no trials, if you could just choose that and, and escape from all the trials in your life, would you choose it? I don't know if it'd be as great as it sounds because we wouldn't have any growth. We, we just spend our life doing what? Everything that's easy? I don't know, that, that doesn't sound all that great. Do you know anybody who has a tendency to run from things that make them uncomfortable, to avoid them? Uh, I do. And I can say that's a surefire way to keep your life small and to miss out on opportunities. So I'll just rewind your mind back to a verse I mentioned a couple weeks ago. One of my favorites, Job 17, 9, what does it say? The righteous keep moving forward. And it goes on to say that those with clean hands, the ones who hold to their way, they grow stronger and stronger. Perseverance, it turns out, is actually essential to following Christ and becoming the person that God has for you. The ability to trust God, forge ahead, it's the gateway to the mature and complete life that God has designed for you. So here's this really, I think, almost universal, universal value principle, um, this universally redemptive value that God wants to bring out of your pain, okay? God's purpose, what he's trying to accomplish through your pain, is to help you trust him. That's what he's trying to accomplish. The entire biblical narrative, literally from the first page to the last page, is a story of faith. God's interactions with humanity are all about faith. That's what he wants from you. Faith in times of ease, in times of comfort, times of sorrow, times of loss times of joy, times of fear, confidence that God is still on the throne and that he is working for you. Okay, so you might have heard the phrase, trust the process, familiar with that one? Uh, probably a lot of people have a coffee mug with that on there. Um, trust the process, trust the process. Trust that God is working for you, believe that. So I'm gonna ask you if you would stand with me real quick. We're gonna, we're gonna wrap up, Jess is, Jess is gonna come and uh, and she is going to lead us in singing.
one line. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. I wanna just hand off to you this verse that if you've been around for a while, you know because I've rammed it in your face a thousand times. It's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and the outcome of all of that will be, he will make your path straight. Lean not on your own understanding, Submit to him and he will make your path straight. Would you choose today to trust in the Lord with your present trial? Would you make that choice right now? Would you choose to stand on the foundation of God's promise that when you submit to him, when you trust in him, he will make a straight path for you? I know that so many of you are facing real things, but God has promised to make a straight path. Would you choose that right now as we pray? God. I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that you sent your son and then you gave us this incredible time-tested word to know that your promise is real. Lord, I thank you for your goodness that is unending, for your grace that goes farther than we could ever run away from you. And God, we just wanna say and acknowledge, yeah, we've had a tendency to worship created things instead of you, we're sorry. And today we turn back. God, I pray that you would make a straight path for the one who needs it today. In Jesus' name, amen.